take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and in that Bible it's on page 939. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 is what we're looking at today as we've been going through the book of Romans, or at least so far through the first 15 verses, and now on to the 16th verse of Romans. Let's read together what the Holy Spirit says to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we're going to look in particular today at verse 16. But those two verses, verses 16 and 17, these are verses that have throughout the ages, throughout the time since they were written down, have sparked the spark of faith in an untold number of hearts. These are verses that God has used to take hold of people, to take hold of hearts, hearts that were once intent on trying to please God by works, to then come to see that, no, we cannot please God by works. It is by faith that we are saved. When we see these verses, these are the verses that summarize Paul's message. These are the the theme verses of the book of Romans, which you might say is the theme book of the New Testament. These these verses summarize what is coming, especially in the, the next chapters leading up to chapter 11, as we are going to take a lot of time to go through that. It is all summed up right here in these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel, this gospel that is the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Uh, These verses are the ones that kicked off that great revival movement of the 16th century that we often call the Protestant Reformation. Really what it was, it was a revival of the gospel and it was sparked by Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Read, believed, preached, believed more. As the gospel went out, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And as we read these verses, there's a simplicity to them. There's a simplicity, even as there's a lot wrapped up, even as there's a summary here of very, very deep concepts that are going to go on for 11 chapters of the book of Romans. There's something just so very simple about the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Oh, so simple. We have here an explanation and a statement of the sufficiency of the gospel for our salvation. And I wonder, do you know that the gospel is sufficient for you? The gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ is a sufficient message for God to use in your heart, in your life, in your eternity to save you and to carry you through to eternity. I wonder if you realize that. I wonder if you are bored with the gospel. Some of you might say absolutely not, but others of you might have to search your soul about this. I had a friend once who told me that it is a sin to be boring when you preach the gospel. 
which I think he told me is a compliment because he wasn't bored by my preaching, but maybe you are bored by my preaching, which is fine. But I, I, I had to think about that for a while, and I had to come back and tell him, I think from the Scripture, it is a sin to be bored by the preaching of the gospel. There is so much else that could draw our hearts away that we could look and we could say, what a simple message, what a strange message, what an embarrassing message, the cross of our Lord, our Savior killed as a criminal, and then rising from the dead, well, that sounds strange. Is that really enough? Is that really going to convince the nations to come and to turn and worship God? Is that really enough for me in my life? Sure, I know that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I, I know that Christ died for our sins on the, in accordance with the Scriptures. I know that he was buried. I know that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. But is that really enough for me? Is that enough to be a gospel on which I stand and by which I am being saved? Because there's a lot of other concerns in my life. There's a lot of other issues. There's a lot of other problems that don't seem to have anything to do with this. Is this really enough for life and salvation and godliness? And beyond that, is this enough to actually address the lost and dying world and the individuals in this lost and dying world who have so many different ideas about what it means to be human, what it means to exist, what is beyond the grave, what it is to achieve eternal life. All of these people, is the gospel really enough? What these verses tell us is that yes. The simple, shameful gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Let's think about this. Let's look at this a phrase at a time. You can follow along and take notes if you want to on the back of your bulletin. He starts out and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, in context there, he's saying he has just told the church in Rome that he's eager to come and to preach to them. You might remember from what we talked about last week that there may have been a feeling among the church at Rome that maybe Paul is embarrassed to come and preach his gospel in this high and lofty place in Rome, the capital city of the, the most powerful empire in the world, with all of these world leaders and influential thinkers and people of all sorts, is Paul preaching a gospel that is too lowly, that is just for all of those people out there in the working class cities, just for all of those people out there among the barbarians or among just the Jewish people back in Jerusalem. Is this a gospel that's really fitting for Rome? And he says, yes. This is a gospel that is fitting for Rome as well as for Corinth, as well as for Philippi, as well as for Jerusalem and for Antioch and for everywhere in between and for Spain, the land of the barbarians where Paul aims to go. It is a gospel that is sufficient. It is a gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and so therefore he is not ashamed of the gospel. I wonder if you've ever read that and if you have ever read that, if you've ever wondered to yourself, well, why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? Why would Paul even need to say that? 
What shame would there be in the gospel? Well, I want to submit to you that if you are a real believer, you understand that there is a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. You understand that there is a temptation to be reluctant, to hold back, to think, maybe I don't really have the right to tell this to someone. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great, the great preacher uh, of Westminster Chapel in the mid-20th century, he, he said, if you have never known this particular temptation, the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, it is probably due to the fact not that you are an exceptionally good Christian, but that your understanding of the Christian message has never been clear. If you don't understand why anyone would be ashamed of the gospel, you don't get the gospel. Why, why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? Well, because we encounter situations all the time where there are people standing in front of our face who would tell us, that is a ridiculous thing that I do not need. That is not sufficient for my life. That is not sufficient for the questions that I am asking you. This happens in situations that are addressed by all kinds of apologetic concerns. There are those who would be in front of us and say, well, I am not going to turn and to believe in your Savior if you can't converse with me on my level about molecular biology. There are those who would say, well, I am not going to turn to your God unless you can converse with me on my level about Kantian philosophy. They would say, no, the gospel is not sufficient here. You need a higher way of thinking. You need something more than that. And you and I know if you have been in those situations, there is a temptation in those situations to be ashamed of the gospel to try to prove, no, really, I am on your intellectual level, and I can prove that someone on your intellectual level would, would therefore believe this embarrassing stuff that saves. Well, the gospel is sufficient. Do you know what the, the desire to converse about molecular biology and Kantian philosophy and every other thing that people throw up there, you know what that really is? That is an attempt to persuade Christians not to confront sin. In fact, that's what the unbelieving heart does all the time when confronted with the gospel. It wants to ridicule the gospel. It wants to dismiss the gospel because the unbelieving, natural human heart has a hard shell built around it that does not want to be penetrated with the light of Christ, does not want the darkness inside it to be exposed for the darkness that it is by the light of Jesus does not want to have that wall torn down and to be confronted with the idea that there may need to be salvation from sin. But the gospel is sufficient. We're tempted sometimes in hard counseling situations to think that the gospel is not sufficient. When, you say, when I say counseling situations, I'm not saying just for if you happen to be somebody who has a formal counseling office to set up and that kind of thing. I'm talking about when you have an intentionally helpful conversation with someone. When you do that, you are being a Christian counselor to them. And I hope that you're being a biblical counselor to them, which means thinking, what Bible verse can I tell this person that's going to help them? But there are hard situations like that where somebody's problem just seems, well, the gospel has nothing to do with this. How can I say to someone who is going through a deep struggle with bipolar disorder, 
you need to come to faith in Jesus. Well, guys, the gospel is still the gospel. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. There are situations of suffering and poverty that we confront where we're tempted to think the gospel is something to be ashamed of. Why would I walk into this person's life who, who needs food, who has no place to live, and tell them, repent and be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That, well, boy, I need to earn the right to tell them that first. You hear this all the time. That is one of the most clever ways to convince Christians to be ashamed of the gospel, is to say you must earn the right to tell the gospel first. Now, do not mishear me. All right? I am not saying ignore the fact that someone needs food and housing. We need to be deeply concerned with that. We need to do something about that to the best of our ability. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus has announced both to the molecular biologists and the philosophers and those with bipolar and those who are homeless and everybody in between, he has announced all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He has deputized us as those who are authorized to tell the message of the gospel to anyone, to anyone. And we need not be ashamed of the gospel. But do you know what really, what really, really tempts us to be ashamed of the gospel is the inherent offense that's built into the gospel. Guys, the gospel carries with it an offense. The gospel is good news. For us who believe, we would say, why would anyone not receive this good news of salvation from our sins? By faith alone, by God's grace, it is so good. But do you know the offense that is built in there? It's the offense that says, hey, you need to be saved. The wages of sin is death. It's the offense that says, you in yourself are bad. That's what the gospel says. It says, you need good news because there is no such thing as a good person. And so when we have the gospel, when we are going out, this this call to repentance is built into it. You can't come to the great physician for healing unless you first know that you are sick. And that is part of the gospel call, is to say, guess what? You are a sin-sick, doomed person who cannot earn anything for yourself except the eternal fires of hell, which would be right for God to cast you into. There is an offense there that's also right there with the good news. And yet the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is the free gift but it is so offensive to people to hear that they need that gift at all. It's a call for people to repent of dead works. The Bible speaks of this, dead works, thinking that your religion can save you. Thinking that your religion can save you. You could be someone who has gone to church for 50 years and gone through all the motions And Jesus would come to you and say, just as he did to one of the greatest religious leaders in Jerusalem, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. There's a call to repent 
of dead works, dead religion. There's a temptation to be ashamed of that. There's a call in the gospel to repent of sins that people know that they have, that they feel like they don't want to be nagged about. So you'll say, I know I have a drinking problem. Be quiet about it. I know that I shouldn't be looking at pornography on the internet. Be quiet about it. I already feel guilty about that. Why are you going to pick at me about that? And there's a call there to repent and be forgiven by Christ, by the blood of Jesus, but a temptation to be ashamed of it. There's a call for people to repent of sins not only that they know about, that they're proud of, We live in an age of self-expressive individualism. We live in an age where it is assumed that whoever you feel to be on the inside as your authentic self, that that authentic self of who you are on the inside must therefore be a good thing that is to be expressed, that is to be affirmed, and that anything that is against that affirmation is therefore harmful. This is why we have, for example, right now, what the world around us is calling Pride Month. Do you know what the Bible says about pride? It comes before a fall. Oh, guys. It it has to do with this idea that whoever a person is on the inside, that, that must therefore inherently be something to be affirmed. And the gospel comes and says, your heart is dead. You need to be cleansed and forgiven, not just for the things you've done, but also for your authentic self that is a sinner. You need to be forgiven. You need to be cleansed. And even for those who are not involved in all of the sins that are celebrated in Pride Month, there is pride itself built into that word is just the idea, yeah, we should be so proud of who we are. And the gospel comes and says, no, you shouldn't. You should repent of who you are. Whoever you are, you need to repent of who you are. You need to be forgiven for who you are and for what you've done. You have no hope apart from the blood of Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you. So if you don't understand the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, you haven't understood the message of the gospel. But there is the encouragement built in here for us not to be ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel. I want to read you uh, a couple of quotes that John MacArthur brings out. Look at this book right here called Ashamed of the Gospel. That's a good title, isn't it? John MacArthur. I think that this one's in our book nook if you want to get it. There's a temptation for churches to be ashamed of the gospel. MacArthur, in this book, he, he says that he was looking through various uh, advertisements for what MacArthur calls user-friendly churches. Some might call them seeker-friendly churches. And here's some of the things that he read. These are quotes from the churches. There is no fire and brimstone here. No Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Another quote. Services at this church have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome, not drive them away. Another quote, as with all clergymen, this pastor's answer is God, but he slips him in at the end. And even then, he doesn't get heavy, no ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. 
He doesn't even use the H word. Call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as the old-time religion, but with a third less guilt. Ah, gospel light. All right. Another quote, another advertisement for one of these churches. The sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. <laughs> you won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hell fire. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It is sophisticated, urbane, and friendly talk. It breaks all the stereotypes. Well, I'd say that's kind of become a stereotype now, but... Well, I'll read you one more. The pastor is preaching a very upbeat message. It is a salvationist message, but the idea is not so much being saved from the fires of hell. Rather, it's being saved from meaningless and a- meaninglessness and aimlessness in this life. It's more of a soft sell. Guys, you know what that is. That's not something where we look at that and we say, boy, I sure, God, thank you that I am not like that tax collector. You know what that shows us? That shows us that built into the life of even sincere and believing churches, there is a temptation in the life of a church to be ashamed of the gospel. We have to know that that is a temptation that's in front of us. I didn't read that so you can say, boy, I'm glad I'm not part of one of those churches. I read it so that you can say to yourself, am I ashamed of the gospel? Do I, do I think that that's what we need? Let's not be ashamed of the gospel, guys. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. I want to present to you that the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is part of the evidence that the gospel is true. Let me explain that to you. Paul says in Galatians that he is not preaching man's gospel. That he is preaching a gospel that he received from Jesus. He says... In Romans 1, the same chapter that we're in earlier in this, this book, in fact, the very first verse, verse, it says, Paul, set apart for the gospel of God. This is not man's gospel, this is God's gospel, but what gospel does man come up with? Man does not come up with a gospel that there is a temptation to be ashamed of. When, when man-made gospels come up, man-made gospels, tend toward what is wise in the eyes of the unbelieving world. Not something to be ashamed of. Man-made gospels tend toward man-centered solutions to man-centered problems. But this is not man's gospel. This is the gospel of God. This is the gospel of God. Where Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's 1 Corinthians 1. Guys, the very fact that we have a gospel that we're tempted to be ashamed of shows us this is not man's gospel. This is something we wouldn't have made up. This is the gospel of God. You see the temptation that, that Paul talked about there. Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. Those who were among the Jewish people were expecting for so long that they would receive a Messiah. 
And they had this idea of the Messiah as one who would march into Jerusalem on a war horse in order to take his seat on a throne in a palace and reestablish the kingdom. And do you know what Jesus did? He came as the Messiah, marched into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, went into the temple and overturned the tables, spent a week being ridiculed and to have plots made against his life, and ended up not on a throne leading an army, but on a cross, dying as a criminal with a sign over his head mocking him as the king of the Jews, with people walking past him and deriding him and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If you were the king of the Jews, come down from the cross. That was a stumbling block to the Jews. They did not expect a Messiah who would come and be crucified. But this is the wisdom and the power of God. That is how God established his kingdom. By Jesus' death on the cross for the nation, and not only for the nation, but for the children of God who are scattered abroad. To bring to himself a people that he has purchased by his own blood from every tribe and tongue and nation who will be gathered around the throne of Christ. Who will be yelling and screaming in shouts of joy and songs, worthy are you to open the scroll. This is our King Jesus, but that is an offense to the Jews, it says. Stumbling block and offense, same word. And folly to Gentiles. He says the Gentiles, the Greeks, the high culture, they wanted philosophical words. They wanted to be wowed when Paul went to Athens for the first time and stood up on Mars Hill, the place of the philosophers, to preach a new idea. They wanted to be wowed with wisdom. And what did, what did Paul preach? He preached Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Not a philosophy, but a set of events to be believed. And they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They said, that's not the kind of thing we want to hear around here. It says, the Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, what is Christ crucified? Well, to the world, that is foolishness. To the world, that's to be rejected. But it says to us who are called, it is the power of God. To us who are called, it is the power of God. And Paul didn't just, he didn't just not be ashamed of the gospel. He gloried in the gospel. Guys, this is what we're to do. Not just say to myself, I want to be not quite ashamed of the gospel. I want to get myself out of the the position where I'm cowering in the corner and maybe just sort of like sit against the wall. No, we want to to do what Paul said, Galatians 4.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like it says right there, in the cross of Christ I glory. We glory in the cross of Jesus. We glory that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and then on the third day he rose from the dead. And that gospel, it says, is the power of God unto salvation. That's the next thing, the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to save people. You need to know up front What it is not saying is the power of God for salvation. 
It does not say that the law of God is the power of God for salvation. Now, I hope you know, we went through the Ten Commandments here. I hope you know that the law of God is good. The things that God requires of people are good things to require of people, or else God wouldn't require those of people. They're summed up in the commands that Jesus said summarize the whole law. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm here to tell you that that message of the law cannot save you. Even as beautiful as the word love sounds, you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you do not love your neighbor as yourself. It is not the law of God that saves, because the law of God condemns. It's a standard for us to seek to live up to, and yet we don't. The law brings death. The gospel brings life and salvation. The law says, do this and live, and we have not done it, and we will not live. The gospel says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not good rules, which is the law, but good news. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not the law. Some other things that are not the power of God unto salvation, influencing the culture. Influencing the culture is not the power of God unto salvation. This has been an extreme temptation for Christians for a long time. It wasn't so much of a temptation for Paul in the first century as the church was being persecuted and they knew that there was a distinction between the church and the world. But it's been a temptation for a long time. There was what was called the social gospel that rose up in the late 19th and early 20th century and infected and ruined a lot of churches. This idea of you just do what you can to improve society, and that is going to bring about the kingdom of God. That is not it. So many people I've heard say, if we could just get prayer back in schools. You've heard this before. I know you may have said this before. If we could just get prayer back in schools, fill in the blank. Or it was when prayer got kicked out of schools that fill in the blank. Now, guys, I'm in favor of prayer in schools. I'm in favor of prayer everywhere. But do you know who it is that removed prayer from schools? A culture that had prayer in schools. If we say to ourselves, if we could just get back to that culture that we had then, the culture we have now is what that culture led to. Do you understand that? Changing the culture is not the power of God unto salvation. Yes, I absolutely want the culture. We literally prayed this morning that our government and our culture would be more conformed to the will of God. We want, we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, but, but the, the changing of the culture will not save anyone. It is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel that saves. Political victories are not the power of God unto salvation. Miracles are not the power of God unto salvation. There are some within the charismatic movement who do what they call power evangelism. By power evangelism, they, they, what they mean is that they, they look in the Bible, which is good. I'm glad they're looking in the Bible. It's good. 
And they see, hey, look, Jesus and the apostles often did miracles as they evangelized. And so maybe that's the real power unto salvation. Not just the gospel, but if, the, if we can attend the gospel together with a healing miracle or something like that, maybe that will be the power of God unto salvation. They literally call it power evangelism. Jesus taught against this. Jesus said that he, he, he or excuse me, Matthew and, and Luke both say that, that Jesus went to the cities where he had done most of his mighty miracles and he denounced them because they did not repent. You hear that? His miracles were proving his status as the son of God, but his miracles weren't saving anybody. The power of God is not miracles. It is not the law. It's not appeal to culture. It's not, boy, if we could just get our church to be more attractive to the culture around us, then we would see an explosion of salvation. Well, you might see an increase in attendance. God might even save some people, which we would just praise God for. But guys, it is not by becoming conformed to the culture. That's being ashamed of the gospel. That's not being faithful to the gospel. It's not by appealing to the intellectual culture, like Friedrich Schleiermacher in his 1799 uh, lectures to the cultured despisers of religion who thought that with the enlightenment and the coming of, of, of all of this new way of thinking and scientific enlightenment, the, the romantic way of viewing the authentic inner self, all these kinds of things that, that you just can't uphold this idea of miracles anymore. Just follow Jesus as a good teacher, as a good example. No, no, it is the gospel that saves. Not, eh, guys, testimonies of personal experience are not the power of God unto salvation. God might use them as part of the process. Testimonies of personal experience are valuable in their own way. Paul does them. He tells how he came to faith in Jesus. And yet, you know what? Every other religion and cult in the world has testimonies of personal experience. And every therapist, every psychologist in Manhattan will publish testimonies of personal experience of what a great difference their message has made in the lives of people. If we just come to people and we say, I have a great experience. My life was bad. I came to Jesus. My life is good. That might be true, but that is not the message of God unto salvation. It's the gospel. It's the simple truth that Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That saves people. That's what God uses as the power of God unto salvation. I used to get the question sometimes. It's been years since I got this question. I don't think anybody in here has asked this question. I wouldn't say it. I used to get this question. Don't you think people ought to leave church feeling better than when they got here? To that I say, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're leaving church knowing the gospel and seeking to follow after Christ, then yes, you should leave church feeling better than when you came in. But if you're an unbeliever and you walk out of the door still rejecting Christ, I want you to be absolutely miserable. 
even if it's the Christmas Eve service. I want you to be awake all night, the night before Christmas, not because you're waiting for Santa, but because you're afraid to close your eyes and drop into the pit of hell. I want you to turn to Jesus, and I want you to know that if you don't, you are in eternal danger, and rightly so, because of the judgment of God against your sin. But if you walk in an unbeliever, and God takes hold of your heart and calls you to himself through the preaching of the gospel and enlightens your eyes to see and to understand the beauty and the salvation of Jesus that he purchased on the cross, then absolutely I want you to leave feeling better than you did when you came in. See, we're not here to provide therapy. We are here to preach the gospel We are here to preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, that Christ died for our sins, was buried on the third day, rose from the dead, and he says that that is power. That is power. Think of the power of God. I can't describe the power of God. You can't fathom the power of God. Even just this one aspect of the power of God that we call the love of God, the the Bible says that we ought to pray that we would understand the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of it, but that it is beyond understanding. And that's just one part of the power of God. You think of the power of even just what God has made. Think of that sun that we have shining outside right now, that we have heating up our sanctuary. I'm going to do something about that. All right, we've got problems, guys. I'm sorry about that. I'm looking at the temperature. Guys, this, you know why the sanctuary is heating up? Because of the sun. And you know what a tiny portion of the sun is shining down on this building right now? And you know the power that is built into that one star? And you know what God did? He spoke it into existence. He just said, let there be a sun in the sky to light the day. Plus, he made trillions of other ones. And you know what the power of God is displayed in, more powerfully than in anything else? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God unto salvation. Unto salvation, which means you need to be saved. You need to be saved. Jesus came, it says, from the mouth of the angel who announced his birth. He will save his people from the Romans? From poverty, from their feeling of insecurity, from their anxieties. No, it says he will save his people from their sins. He is the power of God unto, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because Jesus is the Savior who saves people from the biggest problem that they never knew that they had, which is that they are sinners against a holy God, and that is us. And the power of God is to hear this good news and to have it applied to our hearts. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody who ever hears the gospel is going to be saved? If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, will it save everyone who hears it? And the answer to that is no. There are millions, billions of people who have heard the gospel 
and walked away and rejected Christ. But everyone who God has saved, he has saved through the gospel, and the Holy Spirit has applied the gospel to their hearts in order to cause it to be the power for salvation unto that person that God has chosen and called and redeemed. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but listen to this, to those who are called, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God will not save anyone apart from the gospel. God is not going to go around just waking up hearts to be new creatures in Christ who have never heard of Christ. The Bible says that how are they to believe on him and whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? But through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit has the power to cause that gospel to be applied to that heart and to do what it said back in 1 Corinthians 1, to call them so that the message of Christ crucified becomes to that individual Christ the power and the wisdom of God. That's what we need to pray for, by the way. That's what we need to pray for. If you have someone in your life that you're praying for their salvation, you need to tell them the gospel because that is the power of God unto salvation. And don't say to yourself, well, I already told them the gospel three years ago and they didn't believe it. Keep telling them the gospel. Tell it to them a hundred times. Tell it to them a thousand times. And pray that at some point that the Holy Spirit will use the gospel to take hold of their hearts and apply it to them. And when he does, do you know what that is? That is power. That is the power to call the dead to life. Dead in transgressions and now alive in Christ. And it's a power beyond what you can imagine. Guys, you need to know too that this power is not just for that initial conversion. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for all of salvation. So often when we use the word saved or salvation, we're talking about that initial moment when someone first comes to believe, which we call conversion. But salvation is more than that in the Bible. It's not just the initial conversion. The Bible speaks in different places of us who were saved, who are being saved, and who will be saved. Believer, you are in the middle of your salvation right now. In a sense, it's already done. It was done at the cross. But in another sense, you know what? You're not standing in front of Jesus perfected and complete yet. You're still being saved. Your salvation is still in progress. You are still being sanctified. You are still on your way to being glorified together with Christ. And do you know what is the power of God to accomplish that in you and in your life? The gospel. The gospel is not the, just the power of initial conversion and then you switch over to the law and works. Try to work your way up the ladder. No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation from beginning to end. Beginning to end is in verse 17. From faith for faith. Faith is the beginning. Faith is the end. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are saved all the way to the end. Not like the foolish Galatians who said to themselves, well, I guess we began by the Spirit, but now we'll be perfected by the flesh. 
But no, the spirit, the whole way, the gospel, the whole way. Here's what it says in, in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And how does he do it? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Believer in the gospel today, believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that the gospel is still sufficient for you. The gospel wasn't just sufficient for you to be converted to faith in Jesus. The gospel is sufficient for you right now, for what you're going through right now. The gospel is sufficient for the sins that you are convicted of today that you desperately want to rid from your life. And you say to yourself, but I read a book that says that this particular sin rewires my brain. And because this sin rewires my brain, it must be different than the scheme of the gospel. And yet the Bible still says his grace is sufficient for you. The Bible still says if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Not just the simple unrighteousness, but even the unrighteousness that is deep and penetrating and brain rewiring. Gospel is sufficient for your not guilty verdict on the day of judgment. When you say to yourself, I don't know if I have performed well enough today. No, you haven't. Christ crucified is sufficient for you to be declared not guilty to be acquitted on the day of judgment, to be announced as one who would enter into his glory, as one of whom God would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. The gospel is the power of God unto that salvation. The gospel is the power of God to your final entrance into glory. And do you know who this is for? Who is this for? It is for everyone who believes, everyone who believes. That last phrase in the verse, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, I'm going to save that. I'm going to combine that with verse 17 in the next sermon. But you need to know that this gospel is the power of God to salvation to who? To everyone who does a good enough job for God, right? No. To everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. It is by faith alone. Yeah, he's going to change you. He's going to transform you. He's going to make you different than you were. But don't think that my transformation and the, genu- the, the strength of my repentance and, and the, the level of change that I get in my life, none of that is what saves anybody. What saves the instrument by which God applies the salvation purchased for us on the cross of Jesus by his blood, the instrument by which he does it is faith. And it's a gift of God. By his grace, it's by faith. This gets at the heart of the gospel as it's preached in Romans, in Romans 3.22, which is coming up. It says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a blood sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God against our sins, he put Jesus forward as that sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This is the simple message of salvation. 
simple message of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Guys, that's so simple. So easy to be ashamed of. So easy to dismiss is not enough, and yet it is the power of God to salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's not by works. It's not by religious observation. It is by faith in Jesus. Who is it available to? Anyone. Jews and Greeks and barbarians and everywhere in between. It's available, this salvation, this power of God is available to your atheist friend. It's available to your nominally Catholic father. It's available to your middle-aged son who hasn't been to church in decades. It's available to your aging hippie grandmother who curses like a sailor. This salvation, this power of God, it's available to your perpetually drunken neighbor. And it's available to you, sinner. Say, how could God ever save me by the cross of Christ? Turn to Jesus and believe, and you will have eternal life.